Good morning and greetings in Jesus' name. I too welcome you here this morning. We're glad for the presence of our visitors and uh, we welcome you back. I should just maybe make one quick correction to the announcements and it's not Curtis that got it wrong. I think it was I that got it wrong. I, I don't think it's supposed to necessarily be a hot and cold dish on, on the VVS picnic. You can just bring two dishes. Now, if that ends up being a hot and a cold, I guess that's fine, but I think my wife was telling me that two dishes, hot or cold, I guess. So, um, anyway, hopefully that's correct. Does anybody disagree with that? I don't know. So, okay. So, I think we all know what today is other than Alex's birthday, and happy birthday, Alex, by the way. Um, today is Father's Day. Um, and I, uh, I have to admit, I, I had somewhat of a difficult time. I was like, well, it's Father's Day. Does that mean that every Father's Day needs a Father's Day sermon? And uh, I've been uh, teaching the eighth grade Bible school class this year, and so my, my mind just wants to talk about Paul right now, but maybe the eighth graders would get a little tired of talking about Paul, too. I don't know. But uh, anyway, but one thing I did think about, you know, the fact that I would actually entertain the idea that maybe a Father's Day sermon wouldn't be necessary to preach this morning is maybe a, a good thing as an indicator that I feel that the audience that I'm speaking to, likely that that part of things is uh, is functioning in a good way. That that would be my perception. My perception is that um, you know we, we don't have a lot of dysfunction in the area of fathers this morning. I wouldn't think so anyway. That wouldn't be the way I would take it. But this week I I listened to a few. A few, uh, uh, some broadcasting on, on fathers and, and, uh, with the lead up into Father's Day, that was kind of a, kind of a thing this week. And I, I have to admit that while I do believe that's the case here this morning amongst us, we live in an unusual bubble. Um, the fact that we sit here as largely functional families this morning, puts us in a very, very small subculture of our current culture. That is not the uh, case for many people. As a matter of fact, um, according to statistics, and this you probably just have to take with a grain of salt, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 30% of children today in America do not have a relationship with their biological father, and if you would go into the juvenile delinquent territory, juveniles that are in some sort of restraint because of misbehavior that is highly unideal in our world, we, we run into 85 to 90 percent of those folks that are there are there because they don't have a functioning father figure in their life. And that had such a a horrific impact on them that it caused them to do um, horrendous things. And I, I wish I'd have been listening close, closer, but I think I heard it said that the United States of America has the highest rate of absent fathers per capita in the world. I, I think that's what I heard. 
it's pretty close to the highest if it's not the highest. I'll put it that way. And and I and I just had to, to reflect on that and think, you know, isn't that isn't that? Uh, I guess it shouldn't be surprising, but it is. It is too bad that that is the commentary on our on our society that in this land of blessings beyond compare, that the very fiber of our families are are, are at a probably an all time low. And um, so anyway, I am thankful that at this church, at this brotherhood. Um, I can safely say that from my observation that is not that does not define us. However, I guess it is Father's Day after all, and um, I guess we'll talk about that anyway. Even though we don't need it, we'll talk about it, right? And I did I did think about it as I was sitting here this morning. Now I don't I don't recall very much of um, like if you would say Tell me a sermon you heard when you were between the ages of 10 and 15 that really made an impact on you. I don't know if I could come up with any, but I, I can't remember a lot of Father's Day sermons whenever I was a boy. And, and, I, and I, I'm going to have to ask somebody older than me, did, did that just mean we didn't do that? Or, um, or did I just completely miss that part of things? I'm not sure. But it is somewhat of a tradition here that we do speak to that matter, and so we're going to do that this morning. I don't know, I, I reflected where, where would be a text a person could turn to for a Father's Day sermon. We don't have a Proverbs 32. We have a Proverbs 31, but not a Proverbs 32 for men. So you, you really run out of that chapter, you know, you don't, you don't have like a real chapter you can turn to necessarily. Um, the Old Testament does have a, a lot of examples of families and fathers and references to those. We, you could turn to those. Uh, the book of Proverbs, even though there's not a chapter 32, it does have a lot of references to fathers. And primarily, when the, when the subject of a father comes up in Proverbs, it's usually in the context that now you as a son need to listen to your father. And you as a father, you need to be doing what is expected of you to your children. And it's sort of that, that's kind of the context and what that, where that will come up. And so there's this assumption that a father will be indeed involved in his children's lives. The New Testament even seems to get um, uh, less specific, or there's less said directly to fathers. But there is two verses, and we're going to read those this morning that speak directly to fathers. You can turn to Ephesians 6. These are very familiar verses, but but are the are uh, it's one of the two that speak directly to fathers. And I'm sure you know what it is, Ephesians 6, 4. This, this chapter deals with, um, with um, relationships with people. And it says in verse 4, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And then if you return to Colossians three twenty one, it uh, says something somewhat similar, a little bit different. It says, fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. So when you put those two verses together, two different churches here that Paul wrote to, but you put the two verses together, you, you, can, you can conclude that apparently, and at least the way Paul saw things, that the, the, the overwhelming uh, factor here in this, in this father-child relationship is the fact that we fathers apparently have a propensity to relate to our children in a way 
that provokes them to anger or wrath, and we need a little bit of uh, urging to, to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord rather than the opposite, which, which would be provoking them to wrath. And furthermore, you can deduct from these verses that those two don't jive. So in other words, if you are in some sort of situation or you find yourself in a pattern of behavior where you are habitually uh, provoking your children to wrath, you are not succeeding in bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That That's not happening. And likely what is happening is there is some discouragement on the part of your children. So that's, that is the summation of those two verses if you put them together. Now turn with me to Malachi. Um, we're almost to the New Testament when we get to this verse. And if you don't know where Malachi is, you go to Matthew and then you just page back a few pages. And we're going to read the very last two verses of Malachi. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now I have a feeling that these verses need a much broader context to completely understand. And um, and, and I'm not sure whether I'm just cherry-picking here a little bit to say what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it, and if you feel like I'm cherry-picking, why, you know, Understand, I realize I might be. However, is it, is it, is it, um, not within at least the realm of possibility that what is being said here by the prophet is that there's going to be coming a time when perhaps the relationship between fathers and children will improve. And if you think about what he is possibly referring to, it would be to the coming of Jesus. Which, when that happens, and we have this Holy Spirit that is sent, now he isn't addressing all that, but, but, but we know it happened, that, that there's a change in the, in the fathers, okay, and, and all people that re- receive the Holy Spirit, but the fathers as well. And so their ability to relate to their children in a way that actually draws the hearts of their children to them is greatly improved. I would think that that's at least a possibility or would be a a advantage that we have in the New Testament that the Old Testament saint did not have. I, I would assume that would be the case. I would also say that in the New Testament, and we'll touch on this just a little bit later maybe, but it is interesting to me that I pointed out how that, uh, you know, there's not a lot of verses here that, that talk about fathers in the New Testament. But furthermore, there is different times when Jesus pointed out that the spiritual family needs to take precedence over the physical. And in fact, he warned that, that a time would come when there would be division in households because of Jesus. And you would have to make a choice. Now, will it be my family or will it be Jesus? And uh, and he talks about this, and in fact, there was one time you could almost say that, at, at just a reading, you would say that Jesus was a little rude, uh, but because I don't think Jesus was rude, I don't think that's the case, but if you remember with me in Mark 10, there was a time whenever apparently Jesus' mother's mother and brothers wished to speak to him, 
And there were some people there in the household that said, um, you know, he said, they said, um, your, mother's, your mother and brothers wish to speak to you. And Jesus replied, whoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. And, and what he was saying there is that those that follow me and my words closely are more meaningful to me than my mother and brothers. And if you if you remember, Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. That, that we have recorded in the book of John, that Jesus' brothers did not believe in Jesus until uh, quite a bit later, at least some of them did. Jude and James, we know, did for sure. But, uh, but at this point, they did not. And so in Jesus' life at that point, it was more meaningful to him to uh, be with his disciples than his brother, sister, and mother. And then in, in uh, also, I, I said that was in Mark 10. That was actually in, in Matthew 12. In Mark 10, Jesus has th- these instructions. He says, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. There's a lot in those verses, but suffice it to say, Jesus is saying, if you have to choose between the two, choose right. And and as hard as it is to leave aside familial ties, sometimes that is a choice that needs to be made. And that's a dreadful choice, and it's a choice that sometimes people get wrong. Now, thankfully, I'm not aware that any of us in this room have had to make to make such a hard choice, but sometimes we are called to do that. However, in the grand context of things, family is somewhat of an assumed uh, reality that I think part of the reason you don't have a lot of direction to this in, in the New Testament is because it is simply assumed that this, this is the way life goes down. People will marry, there will be children, there, and because of that, there will be fathers and mothers. And, um, and that is what we have in today's world, and we're thankful for that. And I will say, um, again, I am blessed, and I hope you count yourself blessed too, to be a part of a subculture of people that, based on the Bible and based on the power of the Spirit, can enjoy peaceful, happy marriages and family relationships. I heard this said recently, and I would just like to repeat it because I think there's a lot of truth to that, to this statement. Um, you know, sometimes we um, we think, well, you know, how is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, how is that exemplified in, in a real way? You know, we read through the book of Acts and we see these these powerful things being done. And and you um, you even hear of things in other parts of the world. And you say, well, where's the Spirit moving among us? And um, that might be a, a legitimate conversation. And I'm not saying that perhaps... Um, Perhaps sometimes we do stifle the work of the Spirit. However, I heard this statement, and I think I, I really think there's a lot of truth. If, if we as people, and we are here this morning, if we are living in largely peaceful families, we have largely peaceful marriages, we enjoy being with our spouses, we, we, we you know, things are functioning well. Is that not an evidence of the Spirit in our lives? Uh, do, do we think we're so far above society that we um, that, that somehow just we're just 
supernatural and and um, and we can just do so much better than society at large if we did not have the spirit I would dare say that there's a lot of truth to that and I thank God for that that it is a power it is a it is a demonstration of the power of um, of Jesus of the spirit in our lives so for the rest of uh, this morning I would just like to um, to name some descriptors of a godly father and uh, I got to admit I don't have a lot of text here to go by so this is simply my perspective and uh, you could probably um, you could probably think of other things and I'm sure you you will and, and should but these are things that I think we should play some premium on and um, and so we're going to launch into this and we're just going to simply use the acrostic of the word father and that's maybe lame I know but we're going to do that. We're just going to use those letters, and we're going to come up with some things that I think will be helpful in being good fathers. So the first letter, of course, is F. And the uh, the word that came to me was the word faith or faithful. So again, just, just to go back to um, these verses in Ephesians and uh, Colossians, where it talks about bringing them up, bringing our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And by the way, the word nurture could perhaps be better understood if we would use the word chastening. And the word admonition may be better understood if we use the word instruction. So bring them up in the chastening and instruction of the Lord. Now, we can't do that. There's no possible way we can do that unless we understand, unless we have experienced the faith of God in our own lives. It's, it's impossible. Um, to, to do such a thing. That would be like uh, telling me to go give you swimming lessons when I don't have a clue how to swim. You know, I sink like a rock, and I'm supposed to give you, you know, uh, instructions on how to, sit, to swim. It makes no sense. Neither does it make it se- any sense for us to think we can nurture our children when we don't have the faith of God in our own heart. And I would, I would suggest this morning that a man of faith is more than a moral religious man. Um, you know, a moral religious man identifies with a, a religious creed. He participates in some religious activities, but you get him away from that and he can morph very nicely into very sub-Christian behavior. And he feels very comfortable with that as well. That's not a man of faith. <clears throat> And I trust this isn't a point that I have to belabor. I think I'm, again, speaking to men of faith. And uh, I'm talking to people that know the Lord, and they want their children to know God too. That's one thing that we don't have to question about Abraham, because God said specifically of him that he knew him. I know him. I know Abraham. And I know that he will command his children and his household after me to keep the way of the Lord and to do justice and judgment. What a what a testimony of uh, of a man! And may God be able to say that of each one of us this morning that 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 is the kind of people that He knows us to be. In First Peter four ten, there's a verse that goes like this: As every man has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. All right, so as you have received gifts, you're a steward of that gift, and you're supposed to use that gift as stewards of the grace of God. Okay, very, very simple verse. Now, if you go to 1 Corinthians 4.2, 
There's another little simple verse that says like this, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Now, in the context, Paul is saying that ministers of the gospel need to be faithful to the mysteries of the gospel. You know, I think it appears a mystery to the uh, world around us that what looks so unappealing, and that is this thing of having faith and being faithful in that faith, is actually very rewarding. And we're stewards of this thing. So, so what are some things that we should be called as fathers to be stewards of in our faithfulness? Well, I'm just, I just have a few things here. First of all, um, it shouldn't need to be said, but we need to be faithful to God. All right? When a choice bears down upon us and we're faced with, with some kind of a decision in life, what are the dynamics? What are the issues that help us to make that choice? And I would hope that there are some things that come into play when we make choices, even very mundane ones, that perhaps our neighbor who does not know God would choose differently. All right? So I just recently found out, and this just came to my mind right now, I recently found out through a mutual neighbor about another neighbor, so I guess you could call it neighborhood gossip, but it's, it, it just was, I guess it is so. But th- there's this uh, person in our neighborhood that um, he has a, a golf simulator, and uh, ne- neither me or the neighbor that was discussing this knew anything about this before, but apparently you can buy a thing that you can put in your, in your shed there. He did anyway. And uh, you, can, you can shoot golf balls, and somehow it simulates how you shoot this. It's, it's all electronic. So obviously you're not shooting this ball far. I'm not sure how this works, so, so pardon me for my lack of knowledge here. But the, the thing that amazed both he and I was this simulator gets so realistic that the floor will literally tilt, you know, if your ball, you know, hits, you know, kind of a... a a, uh, I don't know, a hill or whatever, you, you know, it'll tilt. So you, uh, you get that feel when you hit your next ball and, um, and so on. But, but the part that, that was kind of stunning to the neighbor that was telling me this, he said, the thing cost $80,000. And he said, you know, you'd really have to be into golf to do that. And, you know, my immediate reaction is, well, I'm not into golf, but let's just say that I was. I would hope but I wouldn't buy a golf simulator. I mean, 80 grand just to get better at golf. See what I'm saying? There's, there's dynamics that obviously play into the way I would think about things that do not play into the way my neighbor thinks about things. And um, I don't know the man to be a Christian. So maybe that has some, something to do with it. I'm not sure. I hope so. I hope it does. Maybe I am sure. Well, number two, faithfulness, faithful to his wife. You know, I I don't think any one of our wives this morning should ever have to wonder if her husband has her complete loyalty. That that should not be a question in any of our our, um, wives' minds. And neither should our children have to wonder about this. The uh, Bible instructs us very simply to love our wives. And uh, we should, I believe the longer we're married to our wives, the easier that should be and the more obvious it should become that we love our wives. Number three, I think we should be faithful to our calling in life. And you can go many, many directions with that. Um, Some of us have perhaps more specific callings than others, but I I would even go so much to say 
that even our callings and our occupations, we shouldn't be known to be slackers. That's, that should not be who we are. I think Paul told the, the Thessalonian church, he said, whatever your hand finds to do, just do it with your might. Be faithful in that. If a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing right. Number four, faithful to our churches and brotherhoods. You know, there's a very simple statement in the New Testament that says, love the brotherhood. Now, you wouldn't think that would have to be there, but I think there's a reason it's there. And that is because in any brotherhood, you will be able to find some kind of fault in the brotherhood. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why that that is. And that's because you and me are here. That's because each one of us have some issue that we're dealing with that makes this brotherhood less than ideal. At least I can say that of myself. If you've reached a level of perfection where you don't believe that describes you, I would really like to eat lunch with you this afternoon, okay? But I think that's true. I think you'd all agree with that. And I think one of the biggest disservices that we as fathers can do for our children is to either by our words or our actions or both insinuate and imply that the body of Christ is not very high on our priority list. And I think, on the other hand, one of the biggest favors we can do is the opposite, is to imply, insinuate, um, live a life that our children know that it is high on the priority list despite all its faults. And I, and I really think sometimes we overplay the faults. I really do. I, um, I think the church is what we decide it will be to some degree. Now, that's a mouthful, and, and you could take that and run with places where you shouldn't. But you, you know the old worn-out story of the, of the guy that came into town, and he, um, he came up to the church, and, well, what kind of a church is this? And the person that answered the question wisely said, what kind of a church did you come from? And when he described it, he said, that's exactly what you'll find here. You know, we take ourselves with us when we go places. So you want a better church? Be a better person. You'll have a better church. Change your attitude. You'll have a better church. Things will fall nicely into place for you. I would dare say that a father that is willing to identify with a church well, support its programs willingly, I think you send a more powerful message to your children than a, than a hundred sermons that could be preached on the subject. And if you do not, you will create confusion that does not perpetrate or bode well for your children. I believe in this church we have done very well, and I thank you for that. I appreciate the support I see and feel, and I, can, and I encourage you to continue that. Number two, the letter A. Be approachable and appreciative. You know, we as fathers, um, primarily, when you, when you look at it as a, at a very fundamental level, um, you know, taking kind of the, let's just, for a second, just take the spiritual aspect out of it. On a very fundamental level, we are called to be the, quote, quote, breadwinners of the family, right? I think you would agree with that. That's the way it should work anyway. And so when we do this, we tend to pile our plates fairly full. Um, I don't know that there's a lot of uh, slackers in this church. We're, we're busy people. We're busy making a living. And that doesn't get easier as the days go on. But you know what happens when we do that? We get tired, don't we? 
we get physically drained, and uh, perhaps when we come home from work or in from a long day of, of work, um, maybe we just soon be left alone. And uh, there is where we can get ourselves into trouble if we don't watch it. Are we approachable? Are we engaged with our children and our families? I will say in the story of the prodigal son, that is one thing that always stands out to me, how approachable that father was by that stray son. You know, that son that came up and said, hey, divide me the inheritance, and I think the father knew he was going to run to a far country. I sort of think he knew that. I think he knew this son to be a renegade. I really do. And um, But the father, you don't see a lot of bad conversation between the two. They just did what, uh, what the son asked and, and moved on. And I, and I, I guess the, the part I want to draw out there is that prodigal son, prodigal though he was, he was not afraid to approach his father with this, with this question or this idea. And I would say it's a good exercise for us to take first steps in this thing of approachability, make ourselves available, ask questions, engage with our families. On this thing of uh, being appreciative, you know, everyone likes to be appreciated, and uh, we enjoy kind words, we enjoy commendation, and so be generous with that, uh, with our children especially. Um, you know, when they do a good job, they should know that they did, did a good job. We should, we should tell them that. Because I believe that if we are, if we are, um, uh, if we, if we kind of are doing that frequently, when the time comes that there must be hard conversations, there must be the chastening, as they call it, that's going to go easier because there has been something that has built up to that that has given a good relationship there that that part of, of things that we are called to do as fathers um, will go easier. The Bible says that words fitly spoken are like apples of gold and pitchers of silver. And I don't know, what again, what that all means, but it, it, it sure gives the idea that it's a good thing and it will do good things for us. Let the letter T, tenderhearted. And the Hebrew writer says about Jesus that he is a high priest which can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. In other words, he understands us at a, at a very basic, fundamental level. He's tenderhearted. In Psalm 103.13, a verse goes like this, Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. And so there is, again, an expectation that a father is going to have a, a tender heart toward his children. And woe be to the family where that is not the case, where the father is a cold-hearted sort of a soul and, and does not even have um, love and uh, tenderheartedness toward his own flesh and blood. That's, that is indeed a sad case of affairs. And again, I... I don't think that is what uh, what we have here in our in our midst, and I'm thankful for that. But I think a tender-hearted father is a reasonable father. He's one that can understand. He does not have unreasonable expectations of his children. You know, he enters into the joys and sorrows of their life, and I think at times he's even willing to reconsider a position um, because it's appropriate. And I had to think of the Lord different times there in the, in, the, um, in the wanderings in the wilderness where he was ready to wipe out the Israelites 
for some pretty grievous sins. Um, and it says a few times that, that Moses interceded and, it, and the Lord repented of the evil that he would do to Israel. Now, now you, don't see, you don't see God doing that all the time, right? But you do see him doing that occasionally. And I think, I think we as human, frail human fathers at times do well to consider where we're at and perhaps reconsider. And there's nothing wrong with changing our minds on a thing if, uh, if it's appropriate and we decide that is the appropriate thing to do. I want to stop here just for a second. The last three points that we, that we talked about, approachableness, appreciativeness, and tenderheartedness. When you think about those things, and you can add other things to the list, these are things that build what we call relationships, right? And we talked about that. It was, it was some interest to me that we talked about this in Sunday school, this whole thing of relationships. And um, I almost think that that, that merits a sermon in, on, in and of itself. What is a relationship? The, the, the term itself is so... Uh, has so many dynamics to it that it could hardly just be defined as a, in a, just like a sentence. And I'll tell you why I say that. Because my relationship with my wife is different than my relationship with my children and is still yet different than my relationship with Davy. Alright? It, it's just we relate to each other on different levels and so thus we expect different things and different things are expected of us. However, there are some common denominators that will, that will nicely um, help us in all of those relationships. There are going to be some things that are different. Now, in the, in the case of a, of a, um, of a, a husband and wife, there's, there's much more of a, um, of a, um, I'm drawing a blank on the word I'm looking for, but we're kind of on equal ground, okay? I mean, I, I realize there's a, um, there's even a, a headship order there, and I get that, but there's much more of an equalness there than there is, say, of a, of a father to his children. It, when you boil it all down, the father in the home has to retain and has to maintain authority. He has to. And don't cringe at that word. It's, it's the truth. Um, there has to be some sort of an authority figure. Now, the reason I think we cringe from that is because immediately when we talk about that, we think of an authoritarian. That's a different thing than a person that, that exercises godly, loving authority. Now, now I think if you back up, say, 50 to 70 years, uh, I'm not sure if that's quite the right number, but something in that, in that neighborhood, if you back up, I think you will find a culture where authoritarianism was the thing, was kind of the mantra of the day. And so you had, you know, sort of the stereotype was the, the father that sort of held the big stick and he, and he kept everything in shape and there wasn't this loving kindness, all right? There wasn't the tender heartedness to go with that. And so thus, I think, now this is maybe just my perspective, but I think I feel the pendulum has somewhat violently swung to the other direction where today it almost feels like the father, in, at least in some respects, has lost that authority that he should hold, and it's all about relationships. And so, thus, you, you know, when you take that to the exact, to the to the bitter extreme, you basically have the tail wagging the dog, and you have children running the household, and fathers that simply don't have control of anything, and that's not a good, uh, not a good place to be. 
If we had the time, I would turn to this, but if you're taking notes, write it down. Read Proverbs 27.6 and Psalms 141.5. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. There what it is, is insinuating is implying that friends will occasionally wound each other, but it's a good thing. Now, how does that wound happen? It happens because they care so much about that person, they're willing to go out and say hard things, take that risk on that relationship, if you will, because they're a faithful friend. All right? In Psalm 141.5, and I should have wrote that down. I think I'm just going to turn to it because I want to get it right. But th- this one even says it um, a little bit more, um, in a little different way, and I think a little better. It says, let the righteous smite me, and it shall be a kindness. Wow, that seems like an oxymoron. And let him reprove me, and it will be an excellent oil. Now, what was oil used for in the Old Testament times? It was used for healing. It was used for helping things along. And what this is saying is that if a righteous man... I think it was David writing. Yeah, David was writing this. If a righteous man smites me, David says... It will be a kindness to me. And if he reproves me, it will be like healing to me. Now, these things aren't fun. Smiting and and, uh, reproving are not fun things. But David was saying that it's what I need, and it's sometimes what I need in a relationship. I'm going to suggest that we, we as fathers need to maintain the, the authority in our homes. And again, I'm not saying authoritarians. I'm saying just godly authority. And the proverb writer appeals over and over again. He admits that when it comes down to doing the right thing, the chastening, that's hard. Because there's two different temptations. The, the, The temptation is to do it whenever you're angry, which never works out very well. And if you wait till you're not angry, till you wait till you cool off, that might take a day, and then it's like, oh, it's too late. Let's not even bother with it. And so the whole thing just, just gets kind of brushed under the rug, and it never gets dealt with. That's not right. You know, we are our child's friend, but we are not primarily our child's friend. And we cannot be in a place where we allow our children to manipulate us and run the show. And there's no doubt about it that we as children and fathers will likely have disagreements at times. But if we habitually cave in and cave in and cave in to our children, I will tell you, we will end up regretting that someday. And I would like to just go out just a little further. This is maybe easier in those preteen years. Whenever you hit the teenage years, that's when it gets exponentially harder. Because now we're, we're kind of working on an adult level. But does that mean that the father has lost the authority in his home? I say not. And that's why it's so crucial for you as young fathers today that have babies on your laps to build relationships with your children that are good and godly. So when the time comes and you're kind of, you're kind of locking horns a little bit in the teenage years that there's some sort of relationship with that we can work with, and that there is respect there that the children will listen to their father and that there can be um, that proper relationship that there should be. 
If you want a good read, just read uh, about Eli and his boys. Apparently, Eli did not retain the proper place in his son's lives that he should have. And it caused a lot of stress and heartburn for old Eli later in life. And God held him responsible for that when his children were adults and were making their own, own decisions. We don't have record that Eli ever did the things that his sons did, but God held him responsible. And there's something Eli missed, missed, messed up on in, his young, in their younger days that uh, was not good. Okay, enough said on that. Number four, humility. We don't have to talk much about that, but... but um, First Peter talks about being clothed with humility. Micah talks about walking humbly with God. Who doesn't enjoy a humble person? Um, I, I enjoy being about around people that you can tell are clothed with humility. You know, when I think of this thing of humility, I, my mind goes to a, a man that I did business with a few years ago. For a number of years I did business with him. And it's not like the service he rendered to me was not good. He, he did an okay job. But I, have, I, don't, I think I can safely say I had never met a man more full of himself than this particular individual. He was absolutely unashamed to tell me, I mean, just sit there and tell me paragraph after paragraph of all his accomplishments and good things in life and how much money he had and how much money he was making. And, I, you know, you just about had to physically hold your nose to talk to him. As a matter of fact, I, I knew one farmer that would not let him on the place because he literally could not stand to talk to the man. And I, and I understood that. It was, it was very, it was very um, off-putting. And the same thing goes for us, all of us, in any relationship. Um, and, and we're talking about fathers, children here. You know, we need to be humble. We're not perfect. We need to be able to admit mistakes. And we cannot exude some sort of an aura of superiority. We need to be an authority, but you can do that without an aura of, of superiority. And can we be humble enough to even be corrected or taught by our own children at times? I, I think we need to think about that. There are times our children can even teach us something. Lastly, or not lastly, number five, example. There's so much our children learn from example. I would say initially almost everything. But as we, as we, as they mature and they watch us and they, if they can sense that what we say and what we do are two different things and they begin to see that, that hypocrisy there, that will breed cynicism in our children. A cynic is a person who just doesn't trust other people, by the way. And if we raise families of people that do not trust other people, um, that's not healthy either. Because suddenly everybody is suspect. Everybody's a hypocrite and, and so on. And it, um, it basically leads people, cynics basically believe that everybody is living a lie. And that's not true. So we need to show our children what integrity looks like. We can't any, cut any corners here. We need to be honest. We need to show them what kindness looks like. We need to model that. I think we need to model politeness and courtesy. You know, if we expect our children to thank mother for the supper, well, then we probably should too, not? I think we should model what, uh, what it looks like to tackle jobs that we'd rather not do. Model how to relate to people that offended you. 
So you're offended. How are we going to relate to that person now? Are we going to cut them off or, or whatever? Um, are we going to have bitterness and grudging in our, in our hearts? I'd also like to say, let's be a model of a man. Um, we, we live in a world where this is getting pretty messed up. And um, I don't need to say much more about that. But folks, as the world gets weirder, let's not follow it. It's, it's getting pretty weird out there. And we need, we need men that are men. And we're recognized as men. And it's okay to be a man. Um, it doesn't mean that we're, we're, um, we're, you know, unfeeling, unloving. No, but we're, we're men. I, I was talking to, um, to my vet here recently. And he told me that in, um, in the state of Minnesota, there's 170 openings for vets. In other words, there, there's, a, there's a dearth in the land for veterinarians right now. And, you know, so it, it's unbelievable. And he said, everybody coming out of vet school and college is, is a woman at this point. So you can't even hire a man because there's no, no men to be had. And uh, then he, he furthermore went on to tell me that one of the vets there in the, in the clinic um, quit doing large animal practice because she couldn't physically handle the animals. And I just said to him, I said, maybe she shouldn't be a vet. He goes, oh, I'd never tell her that. But my point is, there's some things that men should do and there's some things that women should do, and that is okay. That is simply okay. We should not be, the, the world has got things so mixed up. He, he went on to tell me even more than he said, Veterinary practice has become a part-time woman's work. He said, that's what it is. They want to go to work four days a week, work on a cat, and go back home again. That's it. It's a problem. It's a problem in our world. And all I'm saying is, let's model what manhood is. And there are certain things that we shouldn't expect our wives to do, and, um, and we need to just plain down be that. All right, number six, we're going to wrap this up. And I put down the word realistic. And you say, well, where are you going with that one? Here's how I'd like to just end this. Sometimes whenever sermons like this are preached, I, I felt this way already. You, you kind of sit there and you say, okay, number one, you probably get the feeling here this morning that I think I have this down. And the, and the fact of the matter is I should have said it before, but I don't. Okay, I'm preaching to you because I believe these things to be true. And I am aspiring to these things, but I'm not going to say, and you can ask my children to verify this, that I have every one of these points down to pat, and I am the prime example for all of the above. That's not true. However, I would like to aspire to higher ground. I'd like to do better. I really would. So in the realistic part of things, we need to realistically look at what we can't change. What is water over the dam? What can't be changed? And we need to determine that. And if it's something that can't be changed, then leave it lay. You can't change it. Then you need to look and say, well, what, what can I change? Is there something I should change? What could I realistically change that would make me a better father? And you could probably come up with some of those. And then don't beat yourself up for circumstances that are completely out of your control. I've had people tell me already that I have such an advantage with my children because I'm a farmer, so I'm with them all the time. Well, that, that could be. But I'm realistic enough to realize that in today's world, we simply live in a time where that's not going to be the reality for most of us. Okay? So what can you realistically do in your calling 
that will mimic those advantages of maybe being a farmer to the greatest degree that you possibly can? Well, what can you do? And those are, those are questions I believe have answers if you will look at them realistically. And I would even say that there have been people that have made radical changes because that's what they felt needed to be done. I, um, I, I'm not one that necessarily, um, I hesitate to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I have some problems with, with uh, the man that, that we know as of, of Dr. James Dobbs. And I think he's done some good, but I don't, I don't necessarily ascribe to all the premises of the things that he has done. And I'm not even sure how much influence he has on our lives anymore. But anyway, um, and you probably have even heard this story, but, but, but James tells the story of a time when he was really struggling as a teenager. His father was a, a traveling evangelist, and he was out doing his work, and James was really struggling as a teenager. And his mother called James's father and said, you know, we have a problem here. This boy is not doing well. And his father, to his credit, wiped his slate clear of all assignments for a year, which basically meant his income, all right? And he came home, and he was with that boy for a year and put him on the right path. Now, as I said, I don't necessarily agree with everything. However, there's something to be said for that. There's something that we could learn for that, perhaps. How committed are we to our families? Even when, you know, I was talking about realism. That really probably didn't look very realistic from a human point of view. But it's what needed to be done, and it ended up being a very, very good thing for that young man. And I challenge us, what could we do? Should we be doing something radical for our families? And I trust God will show us if that is the case.